We'll be looking at the latter half of this chapter this morning. You recall last week we looked at the first six verses and that great declaration of verse 6, And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. This morning we'll begin our reading at verse 7 and continue through to the end of the chapter. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. It is completely without error. It is completely sufficient. And it is completely authoritative in our lives. Genesis chapter 15, beginning at verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let us ask for His blessing upon it to our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, that You have given us this Your word, a testimony that we can follow, encouragement in time of need, and a strong anchor for our soul. Lord, we ask that You would bless us as we dwell now on Your covenant, as we see how you have worked in the life of Abram, and in doing so, how you are at work in our lives. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
We live in a society where our word is not our bond. It used to be, generations ago, that when you went into business with someone else, all that was needed was a handshake. Then it became, well, we should write this down on paper so we can understand with clarity. Now, it seems you need to kill a whole forest in order to have all of the papers and all of the signatures that you might need to cover every possible contingency because our word is not our bond. We see this all the time. We see it even in jokes that we make as we are discouraged about this. We make statements like, how do you tell when a politician is lying? It's when his lips are moving. Our marriages break and fall by the wayside. We've even reached a point where adoption of children is no longer final. When difficulties rear their heads, parents try to send children back to orphanages after adoptions. It's because our word is not our bond. We are in a sinful world, and that is our experience, and that is what we see. And sometimes... (coughs) That leaks in to our view of God. We are hesitant about what He says. We are unsure if it's really true or it really will come to pass. And our great God knows this, understands this, and He condescends to us. He does not just give us His Word, even though that is sufficient. Beyond the promise itself, He gives us a sign. And He gives us His firm commitment, His oath, His covenant with us. God binds Himself to His people that we might know the sweetness of His promises. This morning we're going to look at the seminal chapter that deals with this aspect of God's covenant with His people in redemption. It is no accident that this comes right on the heels of chapter 15, verse 6, where it says that Abram believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness. The Lord follows that up by describing in great, wonderful tones the covenant that he has with his people. And so this morning I would like to see three things about the covenant. The first thing that we will see is the sovereign of the covenant. The God and King. The second thing we will see is that there is indeed suffering in the covenant. When we speak of the covenant, that does not make everything perfect immediately. There is suffering in a covenantal relationship with God. And then the third and final thing we will see is the Savior of the covenant. How God is not only King, but He is Savior. Well, let's begin then by looking at the Sovereign of the covenant, the great King, the Lord. And it begins right in verse 7. Abram believes, and God breaks in again, and He says, I am the Lord. Now, I want you to remember the context that we are in here. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give to you this land to possess. Now, this is on the heels of God has already made this promise. If you don't believe me, turn back in your Bible a page or two and look at Genesis 12, 
verses 1 through 3. God has already promised this. More than that, God has already repeated the promise. He does it again in Genesis 13, in verse 4, excuse me, Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. He says, lift up your eyes and look in all of the land that you see, this will be yours. And then when Abram hesitates again, in chapter 15, at verse 5, he says it again. Look towards heaven and number the stars. If you can do that, then you could number your descendants, Abram. God has repeated this promise over and over again. But another thing I want you to notice is Abram doesn't just have a promise. He has something else that seems so obvious that we glance right over it. Abram has God. Do you notice the similarities between chapters 12, 13, 14, and now 15? Everywhere Abram goes, God is there with him. He didn't just give him the promise and say, See you later. I'll check in with you. Leave you a couple of voicemails. No, he stays with Abram step by step. Everywhere that he goes. And beyond that now... The Lord is going to swear and bind Himself to an oath. He is going to seal that promise with an oath to perform it. Now, what does this mean? You all are familiar with the idea of a promise. I'll meet you next week for lunch. I'll take care of that problem for you. We'll go play baseball together on Saturday. Now, when you were young, what did you do when someone made a promise and you weren't really sure if it was going to come true and you wanted to really solidify it? You did that really sophisticated thing that involves your hand. You'd hold out your finger like this and you would say what? Pinky swear, right? And you would, when you got a little bit older and you were more mature, you would graduate up to cross my heart. Hope to die. You would make this oath. When you really become mature and you stand together to be united as one husband and wife, you swear before God and witnesses. But it's all really the same concept. It's an oath. It is a buttress to the promise. It is a reminder of the promise. And we carry tangible reminders about these covenants. All of you that are married know about tangible reminders. Look at your hand. There's a reason why you wear an uncomfortable piece of cold metal all the time in the Texas heat. It's because you look at it and you are reminded of the commitment, of the promise, of the oath, of the covenant. And that's what God does for us. And so He says, I am the Lord. And this is not like, hello, my name is, name tag. This is the beginning of a formula of God setting forth a covenant with Abram. This is how you began covenants, agreements, compacts treaties in Abram's day. He said, I am the Lord and I am the one who has acted. Now, there is something in today's scholarship that looks at this and says, well, this is the way that kings 
and vassals and tribes and others. That's the way that they did agreements back then. And so God here is using a form of this in order to show Abram in a way he would understand. But I think we need to go a little bit deeper than that. We need to ask ourselves the question, which is the substance and which is the shadow? Why did kings, tribesmen, and chieftains of the ancient Near East form covenants in this manner? Because they just happened on it and God said, oh, that's a good idea. No, it's because it's built into the very fabric of the universe. This is the way God makes covenants. And so man copies him. It's built into our being. We are made to be a covenanting people. This is God's way. He will do a very similar thing in Genesis 28 with Jacob. And in Exodus 6, when he appears to Moses, in both places he will say, I am the Lord. Take attention. His presence is with his people. But it is more than his presence that he describes. He also describes his power. He recounts history for Abram. He doesn't just say, I am the Lord. He says, I am the Lord. You know, the one who brought you out of Ur to give you the land. Now, it's remarkable how similar this language is to language in another spot of the Bible. In Exodus, chapter 20. You know the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments begin how? I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now let me lay down for you the parameters of my law, of my covenant, you see, this is how God deals with His people. He tells us who He is, reminds us of what He has done, and then He spurs us on to relationship with Him. It is never the reverse. It is never what we do, and then somehow we get into relationship with God. It is always who God is, what He has done, that brings the relationship. From as early as the days of Abram, and then Abram does something that I think seems a little odd to us, given all that he's been through. He looks at the Lord and he says in verse 8, O Lord God, how am I to know that I am to possess it? And we can look at this in one of two ways. We can look at this, perhaps that he's saying it with a tone of doubt. I don't know how I'll ever get this land, God. How do I know you're not just... Josh in me. But that doesn't fit our context. Because if Abram were really doubting God, if he had really fallen so far off the faith ladder from verse 6 to verse 8, do you think God would have let him stay there? Or would God not have challenged him the same way that God challenged Zechariah when he told Zechariah that he would have a son? And Zechariah said, oh no, I can't believe that. And God said, well, then you won't speak till he's born. We don't see any of that here. And I think what we see here is Abram working in his faith, saying, tell me more, God. Show me the signs so that I can know and I can be encouraged. Tell me the signs. Abram wants to know. He wants a sign because he wants his faith to grow. This is not 
I don't believe, I can't believe. This is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Strengthen me. And so God's response is again something that seems to be a bit odd. Well, it's not odd and then he responds to him, but he says, you know, what you need to do is you need to find these animals. Get a heifer, get a goat, get some birds. We could just imagine Abram scratching his head. Wait a minute here. I asked about the land. I didn't ask for lunch. But okay, Lord, I'll do it. And so he enacts this ritual that we'll get back to in a minute. But then what happens is Abram falls into a deep sleep. And this is much more than Abram being tired. You know, I know some of you think you've fallen into a deep sleep, right? Where maybe even at 6 or 6.30 in the evening, you are lights out. You've worked hard all day. Maybe you've been out in the sun. Maybe you've been out on the lake. You know what that's like. You are bone tired. Nobody could wake you up. You know, it's that kind of deep sleep that you really only can get when you're a teenager. You know, because when you're, when you're a mom, you could have two hours sleep over four days and the baby cries and you're up. But when you're a teen, you could be in the midst of a 15-hour nap and somebody can blare a bullhorn in front of you and you don't even move. You are out. Now, Abram is asleep, but that's not what this is. This is actually the other place where this phrase is used, deep sleep, is when Adam is placed into a deep sleep so that God can take a rib out and form Eve. God is at work here. God is preparing Abram for something spectacular and unique. God is about to deal with him in the same way that he dealt with Adam and the same way that he dealt with Jacob when Jacob fell into a deep sleep and saw visions of angels ascending and descending on the ladder. And out of this deep sleep, God gives Abram an answer. And it's the kind of answer we would want because it's very Emphatic. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners. God gives Abram an answer that is certain beyond any doubt. And it is linked to God's power. It is linked to He is the one who has made the relationship. He is the one who has called Him out of Ur. He is the one who has made the promise. He is the one who is covenanting with Abram. And He says, you can know for certain, Abram, because I am telling you. This is one of the main reasons why we have difficulty believing the promises of God. Because in America today, where I could sit at my desk and watch millions of dollars be moved, where I can sit in my car and see huge spans of bridges and gigantic construction, where I can look out and see gigantic carriers and ships, and we see our own power, we think that God really doesn't have that much more power than us. And we're wrong. God has all power. And when we think about the power of God, that makes the answer more certain. 
because He who has promised can and will perform it. He is the King. He is the Sovereign. But there's more to the story here. And I'm sure it was disconcerting to Abram, and it might be to us too, but we need to look at it from the context of the original listeners and of our lives. And that is that there is not only a sovereign of the covenant, there is suffering in the covenant. The Lord responds to Abram in verse 13, So far, so good. No for certain. But then it kind of goes downhill from there, doesn't it? Know for certain, Abram, that you will be the wealthiest, healthiest, happiest person on earth because you believed me. No. It's not even mediocre. It's not even, well, you know, there'll be some ups and some downs, but you'll have a pretty good life, Abram. No, he says, know for certain three things. First, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. Second, they will be servants theirs. And third, they will be afflicted for 400 years. If you're Abram, you almost want to say, can I really know not for certain? That's not exactly what I was asking for, Lord. I was asking about the land. Now, think of what God is saying to him. Now, he's starting up again this concept of the seed. That's what offspring is here. It is a collective noun that Paul will use later to remind us that this is about Jesus Christ. Seventeen times this word is used in Genesis. And it describes the offspring of Abram that culminates in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the people of God that are found and centered in Jesus. And if you think about that and you wonder, well, how can it be Jesus and it be all of us? All you need to remember is, to be a part of God's people, you must be in Christ. If you are not in Christ, you are not a part of God's people. They go together. Jesus and the church, they are not separate. The believer and Jesus, you cannot tear them apart. And so what happens here is, God describes for Abram the future. Now he begins here with a note of comfort for Abram. He says, as for yourself, in verse 15, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good age. And so, Abram is given comfort. But that comfort is in the context of some hard truths. He says, first, your people will be sojourners in a land that is not their own. They will be aliens. We might even say illegal aliens. They won't have property. They won't have rights. They won't have laws. They will be at the beck and whim of others who have more power than them. And this strikes right at the heart of Abram's expectation. Now think about it. He's just asked, God, tell me how I'm going to inherit the land. And God's response is, know for certain your people are going to wander all over the place. Wow. God's word can be tough sometimes. But we need to persevere and listen. and Hear all he has to say. Because this is a reminder to us that we, like Abram, 
We are a part of His offspring. And we too are aliens. We are sojourners in a land that is not our own. The world is made up of many tribes and nations. Americans. English. Liberians. Kenyans. Japanese. Chinese. One other nation. Christians. We are a nation, a holy nation, a people from every tribe and tongue brought together in one body under one roof. But we have no land now to call our own. We wander in America, in England, in Kenya, in Japan, in China. We wander throughout all of the world waiting for the home that God will bring for us. Do you believe that promise? Where is your home? If a hurricane comes through and knocks down the building where your stuff is, have you lost your home? If you are taken into exile as the people of Israel were, have you lost your home? The answer is no, because your home is where the Lord is. It's the part of that relationship. The second thing that's promised is that they will be servants. And again, we ask ourselves, what? God's just described that He's all-powerful. How come He can't protect us from being other people's servants? And the answer is, God is protecting you. He is in charge. He's doing this for His good purposes and for your good. Now, would it seem like that? I don't think so. I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd have been whistling while I work, carrying up huge blocks to build the pyramids. I would not have had a twinkle in my step. Right? I mean, this is something that we, we don't expect. We expect that if God loves us, He'll give us everything we need now. He'll give us the perfect spouse. He'll give us obedient kids. He'll give us enough money. He'll give us a good job. He'll give us opportunities for evangelism that are nice and easy. He will give us everything we need. But that's not how God grows us in grace and in faith. He challenges us. He makes us the servants of others so that we might be what? Like the servant. Jesus. The third thing that he promises is even worse. It's affliction. And you say to yourself, if you're Abram, Lord, you promised me we'd wander around and then we're going to have to serve others and you put affliction on top of it. And 400 years. We get bent out of shape when we have a one, two year recession, don't we? 400 years, almost twice the amount of time this nation has been on the earth. 400 years they would be afflicted. Four generations. This is difficult to hear. But it doesn't stand alone. This prophecy of difficulty, this prophecy of bondage, is, has a counterpoint. It's a prophecy of redemption. And just like there were three challenges that Abram and his offspring would face, there are three things that the Lord will do, because this is not the end of the story. The first thing we see is in verse 14. But, 
Every time you see the word but in the Bible, take notice. It's usually followed by God. This is what you think, but God. This is what you did, but God. And now here, God says, but I, that is, but God, will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. So the first thing that He will do is He will bring judgment. He will make all things right. The second thing that He will do is, afterwards, they shall out with great possessions. And then the third thing in verse 16 is they shall come back here, that is, in the land when the iniquity of the Amorites is full. God is going to work out perfectly all that He has planned. Now think about who's hearing this. It's people who right now are whipping out their abacuses. This is before the days of Texas Instruments graphing calculators. They whip out their abacus and they start, and as they're doing it, their eyes are getting big and they're saying, it's 400 years. And, and Moses is here and, and he's going to take us out. This is part of the prophecy. God is fulfilling it. We are going to go out. God is going to judge Egypt. He is going to take us out with great possessions. He is going to bring us to a land. Think about the excitement that would fill them. Now I want you to translate that to yourself. Because there's similar language in the book of Revelation. It talks about the persecution that the church will go against. It talks about how the world will seek to destroy the church and destroy the witness of Jesus Christ and how many will die and how faith might seem to go from the earth but for the work of God. And then at the end it says, but God will come back. Jesus will reappear. We will be redeemed and taken to the new heavens and the new earth. And I ask you, is that promise as real to you as this promise was to the Israelites? Because it's the same thing. It's the same covenant. God's purposes are at work. You see, this is not just about Abram. It's bigger than Abram. God's seed would surely get the land. But as one commentator puts it so well, not one hour before absolute justice requires it. On God's schedule, not their schedule. There is suffering that we must go through in the midst of our relationship with God. But the third and final thing that we see is the Savior of the covenant. And we see this first in the oath that he makes. Now let's go back to our story about the animals. Abram had asked for a sign and God says, all right, go get a cow, go get a goat, go get some birds, cut them in half. Put one of them on one side of the aisle, put one side on the one half on the other side of the aisle. And we sit here and we go, this is really weird. But Abram didn't. Because this is something that was done all the time back then. It was the way you made a covenant. They didn't have pinky swear. They didn't have notaries. They didn't have rings that they exchanged. What they said was, we're going to be in agreement and we're going to take the cow and cut it in half and put half over here and put half over here and we're going to walk through. And if somebody breaks the agreement, it's going to happen to you like what happened to the cow. 
You're not going to sleep with the fishes. You're going to be cut in half. You're going to be destroyed. And all of the details are here. Even in the fact that God requires three-year-old animals. Mature for the sacrifice. The fact that they are to walk through and make what's called, here's the fancy term, a self-maledictory oath. That means you walk through and say, may it be done to me like them if I'm lying. If I'm lying, I'm dying. That's what Abram would have heard and seen. And we see this in the scriptures. In, in Jeremiah 34, God says this exact same thing. The Jews were under attack by the Babylonians. And all of a sudden, they got religion. And they said, God, if you just take the Babylonians away from us, oh, we'll do everything you say. Look. And they set up the covenant. And they cut the animals. And they walked through. And God moved the Babylonians away. And 15 minutes later, they were back to their old ways. And God came back and He said, You are dead men. Literally. He destroyed them. And you see, God does this here. He has Abram set this up because it is an oath. He wants to confirm His promise. We see this in Hebrews chapter 6. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn there. You can also just listen along. As we look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abram, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, who could he swear by? He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And then Abram, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all disputes an oath is final for confirmation." So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. And that's what God is doing here. He is making an oath to Abram and all of his offspring that He will keep His promise. And this is, in some sense, what we expect. God makes this oath, this agreement... Abram, this is my promise. You do what you're supposed to do, and I'll bless you. That's what we expect, don't we? That's what we say to our kids. Well, if you do your homework, then you can have some ice cream. If you do this, then we'll reward you with that. And we expect that in our own lives. But something happens here we don't expect. It's contrary to everything in all of history, every kind of covenant. Look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now picture the scene. It's dark. There are dead animals on either side of this aisle. And what is supposed to happen is Abram, the vassal, Abram, the servant, Abram, the guy who's not in charge, not making the covenant, he is supposed to walk through and say, God, thank you for promising me the land. If I don't keep my part of the bargain, then may it be to me like this cow that's been cut in half. That's what's supposed to happen. But it doesn't. Do you see this? Abram doesn't go anywhere. What goes between the pieces? 
the smoking pot, the flaming torch, which represents what? God. God goes through the animals. God says, I will keep the covenant. I will be responsible. I will take the punishment for a broken covenant. He's not supposed to do that. He's the king. He is the sovereign. He's supposed to hold Abram accountable. But God goes through. It's a turnabout that we would never expect. God is saying that He is the one who will guarantee the covenant. He will ensure its fulfillment. He will take the punishment. So how does this work out? How can this possibly be? Because we all know, because we know our Bibles, and also because we know human nature, that there is no way that Abram and all of his offspring are going to be faithful to this covenant. They are going to mess it up. We've already seen it time and time and time again in Genesis. What would possibly happen? How can this possibly be kept? We get the answer. Not here. It's a little further in your Bible. We get the answer in Luke 22.20. Where the same one that spoke to Abram said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. God pays the price of the broken covenant in the person of Jesus. Jesus had to die upon the cross. It was the only way the covenant could be kept. It was the only way the promise could be fulfilled. It was what God had declared back here in Genesis 15. That He would take the punishment. That He would pay the price. You, dear Christian, you who have faith in the One who came, You are the recipient of the promise of Genesis 15. It was sworn by the Lord and sealed in His very blood. If you believe on the One who has promised, if you believe on the One who took on flesh and came to fulfill the promise, then you are a part of the people of God. You are wrapped up in His covenant. You can never be taken out. God has assured it By His power, by His presence, and by His blood. If you find yourself asking the same sort of question that Abram asked, How shall I know, Lord? Lord, how shall I know that I'll inherit eternal life? How shall I know that there's a mansion for me? How shall I know, Lord, that I will be part of a people? The answer is found at the cross. Jesus has answered those questions forever. The same God that spoke to Abram, the same God that swore an oath, that same Lord fulfills it for Abram, for you, and for me. All to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray.